Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. In January of 1784, the new American nation had to figure out everything. Against all odds, 13 states had won a war against the British Empire and completed a revolution. The last of the British soldiers had sailed away from American shores just a couple months earlier, and it was time for the people of the United States to figure out how to manage themselves. They had to build governmental systems, departments, and institutions. They had to pass new laws and decide who should interpret them, enforce them, and adjudicate them. And more than a few believed the fight with Great Britain was not truly done, so decisions had to be made about a standing army and navy. Part two of the American Revolution happened 20 years after part one ended. In the United States, it's called the War of 1812. The British Empire returned to America to try to reclaim its former colonies. After two more years of war, the effort failed. America won its independence in the Revolution, but it secured its independence with the War of 1812. The rapidly expanding United States was firmly established as a sovereign nation, and its effort to preserve some of its history was already underway. Shortly after the American victory at Yorktown, Congress authorized a monument to commemorate the event. After the War of 1812, wealthy citizens bought the sites of Fort Ticonderoga and Bunker Hill. In 1825, for the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Marquis de Lafayette laid the cornerstone of the monument that would honor the first full-scale battle of the Revolutionary War. On July 4, 1837, a group gathered near the small wooden bridge over the Concord River in Concord, Massachusetts, for another commemorative ceremony. It was 62 years after the fight at North Bridge when colonial militiamen exchanged gunfire with British regular soldiers for the first time in the conflict. 20 years later, after the American nation, which was still fewer than 100 years old, nearly tore itself apart with a civil war, battlefield preservation efforts took a larger step forward. From the 1870s to the 1930s, the U.S. government took slow and sporadic steps to protect battlefields and important places. From the Revolutionary War, the Saratoga Battlefield and the site of George Washington's camp at Morristown, New Jersey were protected. The sites of the Battle of Cowpens in South Carolina and the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in North Carolina were protected. 
Cowpens was celebrated as the first victory of the American Southern Army over a portion of the British Southern Army. And Guilford Courthouse, though technically a British victory, was instrumental in pushing British General Charles Cornwallis to move his army to Yorktown. But after that 50-year period, preservation efforts stalled before they picked back up again in the late 1980s. Those efforts vaulted forward in the 1990s and have continued at an impressive pace to this day. By the 2000s, there were monuments and or parks to protect or commemorate the major places and events from the entire Revolutionary War period, both North and South. Bunker Hill, Saratoga, Morristown, Brandywine, Valley Forge, Kings Mountain, Cowpens, Guilford Courthouse, and Yorktown. Many of the others were already lost to the development of growing cities. Germantown in Philadelphia, Brooklyn and Harlem in New York, and Princeton in New Jersey. But one prominent battleground was neither paved over for a modern city nor protected by a park. The site of the Battle of Camden. It was one of only two battles in the southern theater of the Revolutionary War that featured the full armies from both sides. The other was Guilford Courthouse. But the difference between the two battles was that Camden was a devastating defeat for the American army. As such, the battleground fell by the wayside. Monuments were not erected to the soldiers who fought there. The land was not preserved so that it couldn't be touched. It was left to the ravages of time, industry, and human interference. The shallow graves of the fallen soldiers were eroded by nature, injured or destroyed by farming and timbering and robbed by relic hunters. Then, in the mid to late 1990s, conservation efforts became more serious, and they have increased exponentially up to the present day. But by 2019, it was clear that action was needed to protect the graves of some of the soldiers. A rare step had to be taken. The remains of the soldiers whose graves were in the most danger would need to be exhumed and reburied to keep them safe. This is the story of the preservationists, the archaeologists, the forensic anthropologists, and the veterans who were charged with performing the once-in-a-lifetime work. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is episode nine, The Camden Burials Project. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation. You just heard the story of the American Revolutionary War, and you're about to hear the story of the archeological work at the Camden Battlefield and the ongoing efforts to protect and preserve the battleground. While that work is specific to Camden, it's also part of a much larger project in South Carolina called the Liberty Trail. That project connects all the important Revolutionary War sites in the state. If you've enjoyed this podcast series, I highly encourage you to make the pilgrimage to South Carolina to see the history for yourself. When you do, visit Camden at the heart of the Southern Campaign and see the historic Camden Foundation, which interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Go to historiccamden.org 
to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. The ground of the Camden battlefield looks and feels like a beach in the middle of a state that has somehow sprouted a forest. Millions of years ago, the central part of South Carolina was the coastline of the landmass that would be called North America. Then, when the Atlantic Ocean receded to roughly its current level, it exposed the rest of the state of South Carolina. But it left that sandy soil as a marker of the original beach line. Huge pine trees grew up out of the sand. Today, they're called old-growth longleaf pines, and they were enormous. The trunks of many were more than six feet around. It would take at least two people holding hands to wrap their arms around a single trunk. Between the trees grew tall grasses that disguised the forest floor. That was what the battleground looked like in August of 1780, and that was where the problems for modern preservation began. The first problem was the most basic, and it sounds like one that would normally be taken for granted. To preserve the battlefield and to try to protect the graves of the soldiers who were buried there, someone had to figure out exactly where the battlefield was. The concern is the site has not been treated as a battlefield like a Gettysburg. So there's no visitor center. There's no rangers there protecting it. There are human remains out here, and this site needs to be protected as if it was a sacred site. Steve Smith is the research director at the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, and he specializes in the archaeology of military sites. He's worked on numerous battlefields of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, and together with his colleague Jim Legg, they began pushing for change at the Camden Battlefield in the early 2000s. Jim had actually been writing letters and voicing concerns longer than anyone since the mid-1990s. He's a research archaeologist at the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, and by the early 2000s, the powers that be posed a very basic but critically important question. I was asked if we want the core of the Camden battlefield to be preserved, what should we draw a line around? Somewhere in the pines north of the town of Camden, roughly 4,000 American troops squared off against roughly 2,000 British troops in the thick, early morning fog of August 16, 1780. To preserve the ground where they fought and where the fallen were likely buried, someone had to define the dimensions of the battlefield. Jim and Steve spent hours walking the battleground, doing some very basic field archaeology and poring over source material. And then they took the extra step that proved to be crucial to the overall effort. They interviewed relic hunters who had prowled the ground for years, many of whom had dug up the graves of soldiers and taken artifacts, which they kept for themselves or sold on collector's markets. When we talked to the relic collectors, many of them cooperated with what we were doing. They would show us where things were. A couple, I believe, even admitted to finding human remains. I know for sure one of them. So the original primary sources and the original maps and 19th and 20th century maps, the current topography, the relic hunting history, 
and the archaeological evidence that we've amassed since 1998, they all lock together to show us exactly where the battle was. And to some degree, the line that I drew around something like 390 acres at that time turned out to be dead on. That process finally happened 220 years after the battle. But unfortunately, it didn't immediately stop the work that was happening on the battlefield, and it couldn't make up for lost time. By mid-morning on the day of the battle, in 1780, the fighting was done. The dead and wounded littered the ground. Hundreds of American soldiers had been captured, and thousands more had scattered in all directions. The American Southern Army had been destroyed and the British Southern Army was responsible for tending to the wounded and burying the dead. I would guess that the process began the afternoon of the battle. They probably dragged in the wounded to begin with, and then there were plenty of prisoners of war who could be directed to, to dig graves. Probably if there was a, a small area with three individuals on the ground, that's where they dug a hole and put three individuals in it. Whoever actually did the work, whether it was the British soldiers or American prisoners of war, they scratched out shallow graves in the sandy soil. When the work was finished, the British Army moved on, and the battleground likely remained for many years just as it was on that day. But in the 1800s, farmers started plowing parts of the battlefield to plant crops that ranged from cotton to watermelon likely with no idea that hundreds of soldiers were buried just inches beneath the surface of the ground. The pine trees were tapped and harvested to make turpentine, and in modern times, the trees were cut and hauled away by the timber industry. Right up until 2022, the groups that controlled the Camden battlefield, including the most recent custodian, the historic Camden Foundation, permitted the logging industry to harvest the pine trees for timber. It was a kind of catch-22. The revenue from the logging industry was strictly used to help preserve the battlefield. But the industry was the thing that was hurting the battlefield. The last time they did tree thinning and cut a big logging deck in the middle of the battlefield, there was this two-acre, three-acre expanse that had been completely clear-cut down to the bare sand. And then these giant machines dragged several hundred cut trees to this clearing and stripped the branches off and loaded the logs on logging trucks and they drove away. And this went on for several weeks. The work was happening right in the heart of one half of the battlefield, where soldiers had fought and died 242 years earlier. Jim wrote an urgent letter to the historic Camden Foundation. And that's what I was complaining about, was this outrageous logging deck right in the middle of the British line. As it happened, a new executive director, Kerry Briggs, had taken over historic Camden just a few weeks earlier. He read Jim's letter and understood the potential for the destruction of the graves that were just below the surface of the sandy soil. And it was brought to my attention that they were buried very shallow, that we were timbering, and that came to an abrupt halt. The halt happened in the spring of 2022, and it happened none too soon. Plans were already well in motion for the Camden battlefield to finally receive the treatment of other historic sites. It would be transformed into a park, complete with what's called interpretation, 
walking trails, signs, and monuments that explained the Battle of Camden to visitors. But before the real work of the transformation could begin, the custodians of the battlefield had to tackle one more immediate concern. They had identified a few graves that were in serious jeopardy of destruction and or desecration. In the spring of 2019, a collection of national, state, and local groups came together to begin the process of planning the transformation of the Camden Battlefield. One of those groups was the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology, led by its representatives for the project, Jim Legg and Steve Smith. The archaeologists notified the larger group that there were several graves that were already known to members of the general public, namely artifact collectors and more graves had almost certainly experienced trauma or total destruction because of generations of farming and industry on the battlefield. The South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust took the lead on the overall transformation project, and its CEO, Doug Bostick, met with the archaeologists to discuss the issue of the graves. We knew early on that some bodies had been discovered, some by doing archaeology, but others by collectors looking for artifacts. We thought we got to a critical mass of five bodies known to the public. That being the case, we were very concerned about these graves being desecrated further, and we decided to excavate them in order to protect them. That was the genesis of what became known as the Camden Burials Project. The goal was to exhume the remains of what were thought to be five or six soldiers, then honor them with a proper burial that would keep them secure from natural erosion and relic hunters. Steve Smith became the principal investigator of the project, and Jim Legg became the field director. They recruited a small team of archaeologists to help with the work, but it was also necessary to add specialists who worked with human remains. Deputy Coroner Dr. Bill Stevens and Dr. Maddie Atwell are forensic anthropologists with the Richland County Coroner's Office. They, along with others, helped guide and perform the delicate work. Myself, along with Bill and Carlina, were there to help identify human remains. So oftentimes in contexts like this, outdoors, you find faunal remains, so animals, non-human. So to be able to differentiate between human and non-human, which is what we also do in our everyday forensic work. The work began in September 2022, but the six-week project soon expanded to nearly nine weeks. The reason for the additional time became apparent in just the second excavation. What we didn't know was that places where we thought we had a body, in some cases turned into three bodies, or five bodies, or two bodies. As Jim Legg said, whoever performed the hasty burials, whether it was British soldiers or American prisoners of war, or both, they dug shallow holes near the places where the bodies of the fallen soldiers lay, and then placed the bodies in the hole together. 242 years later, the uniforms had dissolved, and the forensic anthropologists had to try to make sense of the scene. Deputy Coroner Dr. Bill Stevens. Remains were essentially superimposed on top of each other, commingled contexts where there's no clothing that separate the bodies, it's all deteriorated, can be very challenging. 
And so the need to determine MNI, which is minimum number of individuals, became really critical. And then once we figured that out, to create maps to figure out how they're commingled. We didn't end up with five removals. We ended up with 14. So it became an infinitely larger project than we anticipated. And in addition to the co-mingled graves, the other thing that became apparent immediately was the trauma to the graves from more than 200 years of farming, timbering, and relic collecting. It was horrific to see the damage that had been done over the years. Some of the burials have the characteristic parallel grooves cut through the top of the remains where the plow point or the harrow blades or whatever it was they were using that went that deep impacted the remains. Our grave of five individuals, our largest grave, was right in the line of a farmer's tractor. So the ruts from the tractor over the years, you could see where they lined up and the pressure that was placed upon the buried remains. As far as the relic hunters, there, again, unfortunately, were shovel marks, things where, you know, a femur, a long bone, was fractured in such a way that you could see a a metal tool, such as a shovel, had, had hit it. In one grave, we saw where the shovel had gone down past where the bones were. There were no bones in that area. So obviously, the person got what they were looking for, and the bones that were there, in this case, part of a pelvis, are just tossed out. And within a matter of a week or two, they dissolve because now they're exposed to the elements. It's heart-wrenching. In the case of the 71st Highland individual, the individual who found him got to the bottom of that hole and found the artifacts and recognized human remains and covered him back up with the thought that he might ultimately be professionally excavated. Doug Bostick. CEO of the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust. This is the first time in my 15-year career that we've actually excavated human remains. Every battlefield is a cemetery. We don't go look for them. We know they're there. We're happy for them to rest in peace unless they become known to collectors. Part of the motivation for this project is sadly on the collector's market. Artifacts are extremely valuable. And when that occurs, then we feel like we have to respond accordingly. But with all the challenges and the frustration over the trauma sustained by some of the remains, the painstaking work continued. And the team slowly began to understand the stories of some of the soldiers. As the weeks passed, The workers on site and the historians who knew the events of the Battle of Camden believed they had a consensus. We believe, based on artifacts and places they were found, that we have 12 Continental soldiers, probably mostly from Maryland, but could also be from Delaware, Continental regiments. We know we have one British 71st Regiment of Foot Highlander, based on his artifacts. And we have another person who is a militiaman the soldiers quickly became known as simply the 14, a project that had been designed to protect the remains of five or six soldiers ended up uncovering 14. Though their uniforms had dissolved over time and most of the military accoutrement that had been buried with them had been robbed, their graves did give some insight into their identities. 
Their names are, as yet, unknown. But some of the buttons that survived in the graves identified a few of the soldiers as American Continental soldiers, the regular soldiers of the U.S. Army. The buttons on official Continental uniforms were engraved with the letters USA, and those letters were readable on several buttons. The volunteer militiamen didn't have a uniform. He would have worn common, everyday clothing. He had plain colonial buttons that were taken by a collector, but the collector did tell us about it. And plain colonial period buttons are what tell us that that's a militia person. In addition to the surviving buttons, the soldiers' placement on the battlefield, as Doug said, led the team to believe that they knew where the men were from, even if they didn't know their names. And for the Continental soldiers, that led to another surprise. One of the shocking revelations is that five of the 12 Continentals recovered are teenagers. Dr. Bill Stevens and Dr. Maddie Atwell point out that they will probably never know the exact ages of the soldiers whose remains were recovered, unless at some point in the future, they learn the names of the soldiers and those can be paired with names on the original muster rolls. At the moment, the best the forensic anthropologist can do is provide age ranges. For our younger individuals, of which we had a surprising amount of in this context, five of the 14 individuals were what we call sub-adults, zero to 20, the youngest being probably 15 to 17. A couple of people were 17 to 19 and 18, 19, maybe 20 for the other individual. The lone regular soldier from the British side was a Scottish Highlander who was likely an officer in the 71st Regiment of Foot. He had been buried deeper than the other soldiers, and the placement of artifacts in his grave signaled that he was probably buried by his own men. He clearly was a very active individual based on biomechanically. He looks to have been marching for thousands of miles. He reflects large muscle mass, and he is a healthy adult, probably under 40. And there was one final surprise in store for the team, one that, again, expanded the work and the scope of the project beyond anticipation. The militiamen, who likely fought with the British Army, had Native American ancestry. Based on the militiamen's clothing and the placement of his grave on the battlefield, he was likely a volunteer from North Carolina who fought with the British. When the forensic anthropologists cleaned and documented his remains, they noticed that his incisors, the front four teeth in the upper and lower jaw, bore the telltale signature shape of someone who has Native American ancestry. Now, truthfully, he might have had no idea himself that he had Native American ancestry. As a point of quick clarity, for those who might picture a movie like Last of the Mohicans, that was not the scenario here. The North Carolina militiaman was almost certainly not a Native American warrior who fought with the British. He probably looked like any other soldier on the battlefield, but his ancestry changed the circumstances for the project. And so we alerted the directors of the project immediately and that they could follow up on legal requirements and notification of the tribes in the area to see that their wishes and all the legal protocols are followed for Native American remains, and we respected all that going forward. So we had to treat him entirely differently out of respect for the tribes, and we've carefully coordinated with the Catawba tribe, who holds responsibility for all tribes on decisions in South Carolina, 
but also the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina. At the point in time when the distinct incisors were discovered, all work on the remains stopped. The directors of the Camden Burial Project spent the next few months working with Native American tribes in North and South Carolina to adhere to their wishes for the soldier. And the directors took the additional step of opening the discussion up to every tribe in the United States. All were invited to give their input before any reburial took place. By the second week of November 2022, the work on the battlefield was drawing to a close. But the work in the Richland County Coroner's Office continued long afterward. Dr. Stevens, Dr. Atwell, and the rest of the team completed the long, slow process of preparing the remains for reburial. As a part of the process, they set aside samples of bone and teeth to be sent to a DNA laboratory in Great Britain for analysis. When the Camden Burials Project was announced, hundreds of people, mostly from Virginia and Maryland, reached out to ask about the identities of the soldiers. People were eager to know if their ancestors were among those found at the Camden battlefield. As of this production, the DNA process is still ongoing, though there's at least a decent chance that the Highlander could be identified. We've worked closely with the British Archives and the National Archives of Great Britain to determine who was killed in action at the battlefield. And it's through their guidance we've arrived at the last six that we think he could be. A man, probably somewhere between the ages of 30 and 40, had traveled 3,000 miles from Scotland to America and then marched hundreds or maybe thousands of miles after he arrived. He fought in major battles, maybe half a dozen or more, before he fell in the pine trees north of Camden, South Carolina. His family was likely notified, eventually, of his death in a distant land. But in America, after the Battle of Camden, such notifications couldn't happen for many families. The battle resulted in such chaos for the Continental Army that it was impossible to know exactly who was killed versus who was captured versus who was missing. For a member of the team who worked at the excavation site, those scenarios and possible feelings hit closer to home. She's a retired lieutenant colonel with three children, one of whom is nearly as old as some of the teenagers who died at the Battle of Camden. Retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Stacy Ferguson joined the historic Camden Foundation in March of 2022. After her military career, she decided she wanted to do something outside of the conventional paths of defense jobs or government jobs. She wanted to be a farmer. She knew about the small town of Camden, South Carolina, because she had been deployed at Shaw Air Force Base, which is just 25 miles down the road from Camden. When she retired, she and her husband and three children moved to Camden, and Stacy began working for the historic Camden Foundation as a farmer. Historic Camden is a living history experience. It has a small working farm, a working blacksmith shop, and numerous other facilities that showcase early American history. Carrie Briggs, executive director of the Historic Camden Foundation, quickly realized the value of Stacy's abilities, and she became operations manager for Historic Camden. And when the archaeology began at the battlefield in September 2022, Stacy became a key volunteer 
and an unofficial military liaison. She worked at the site, and as a self-professed history nerd, it was the opportunity of a lifetime. As a veteran, it was a solemn and important mission. I think that moment that really touched my heart was the second dig site that we were on. It was two soldiers. And so it's just real quiet there. It's in this pine forest. There's hardly any traffic going on the road. And it's just this just really silent area. You don't even hear birds or chipmunks or anything. Just, you know, the breeze through the trees. And so it sets you up for that perfect environment to meditate and to really think about it. And then I started basically in my head having a conversation with this person. Who are you? What was your life like? Who was missing you back home that never got to see you again? And it occurred to me that, yeah, these guys here are our very first veterans. There's always a lot of platitudes that, oh, you offered to lay your life down for your country. You deserve a lot of gratitude and thank you for your service. But working with these guys, and then I thought, no, these are literally the ones that did lay their lives down to make us free. And they didn't have a chance to enjoy that freedom. They never knew, they never got to know that we won and what our country would become later. So I would just have a conversation in my head and say, thank you. And I hope we're doing all the right things for you. And we want to know more. If we can tell family many generations down that we took good care of you, then that would be good. The project hit closer to home when she learned the age ranges of some of the soldiers in the graves. The forensic anthropologists, Dr. Stevens and Dr. Atwell, were able to determine, based on the growth of some of the bones, that five of the soldiers were probably between the ages of 15 and 20 years old when they died. You know, I have a teenage son and two more that won't be too far behind him. And as a commander, when I was in the Air Force, we had teenagers. And like any teenager, they would sometimes goof stuff up and they were learning and they were figuring out life and how to be an adult and how to be a hard worker and all those things. And you feel a real duty to protect them, to give them what they need, to give them guidance. And I just wondered for these teenagers, they probably grew up a lot quicker. They probably weren't like the teenage airmen that used to work for me. They were probably wise and old beyond their years. There's a chance that this is not the first battle that they fought. They may have been in several. And I thought how incredible it is to think that my son could have been looking to go into the army pretty soon and with a fair chance that he would die. So yeah, it, sometimes there's just no words. Retired U.S. Army Major General Julian Burns is a native of Camden, South Carolina. The Burns family moved to Kershaw County, where Camden is the county seat, in the 1780s after the British Army vacated the area toward the end of the Revolutionary War. Members of the Burns family have fought in nearly every American war since the French and Indian War. General Burns' father and grandfather fought in the World Wars, and he's a West Point graduate who served during America's wars of the 20th and 21st centuries. He played an instrumental role in the Camden Burials Project. Men and women fight for a dream. And that, to me, bespeaks the emotion of the fact that they had a vision of a country worth fighting and dying for before the country even existed. We have an expression in the Army that says we never leave a fallen comrade. 
And that is our conviction here that having found these wonderful soldiers of both sides, by the way, we should take every step to honor them and make sure they are given the funeral they were never given in August of 1780. Next time on Mission History, the U.S. Army makes an official declaration about the 12 Continental soldiers from the Camden battlefield. Service men and women from multiple branches of the U.S. military help honor the fallen. Thousands show up to pay their respects, and representatives of five nations converge on Camden, South Carolina to participate in once-in-a-lifetime ceremonies. That's next time on the final episode of this series of Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the historic Camden Foundation. Thank you to Carrie Briggs, Doug Bostick, Jim Legg, Steve Smith, Dr. Bill Stevens, Dr. Maddie Atwell, Lieutenant Colonel Stacy Ferguson, and Major General Julian Burns. This series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. Interviews researched and conducted by Mandy Wimmer. Producers are myself and Mandy Wimmer. Executive producers are Carrie Briggs for the Historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotampish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pykooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.